1: Ladies and gentlemen, I am Dustin Gold. Welcome to the Dustin Gold Standard Podcast. You are listening to pain.tv slash gold. Happy Sunday, ladies and gentlemen. Sunday night, Monday morning, whenever it is, you are listening to us over here at the Dustin Gold Standard. So I have to get ready, folks, to go pick up my mother-in-law at the airport she's flying in from poland and she's going to be here for about three months to help us out so we are getting ready to do that my wife decided I want to get out of the house, so we're going to take the baby on its first little trip to Dulles Airport and see how that goes. Ladies and gentlemen, maybe I'll get to change some diapers in the car while my wife gets to feed baby William. So that should be a lot of fun. If you haven't had a chance, check it out over at Twitter at Hackable Animal. I put up a little video I shot of William in his first suit And he looked like he was tap dancing. So I put it to some tap dance music, and I find it to be quite entertaining. I'll see if I can upload that at pain.tv slash gold. To all of you who have left a five-star review at Apple Podcasts along with a comment, thank you very much. If you have not done that, please pause for just a moment and do that. Folks, we appreciate it. Join us at Payne.tv slash gold. Get access to the ad-free video version of this podcast as well as the Thomas Payne podcast and you get access to a Facebook-like website and app where you can communicate and share intelligence with like Minded folks, if you'd like to leave a donation for the show, check us out at donorbox.org Dust and Gold Show. It helps put food on the table and keep the lights on over here while we're building up the monetization on the Dust and Gold Standard. All right, ladies and gentlemen, let's get right into it. Yesterday we ended, we were reviewing the uh, paper that I found, very good paper called retrospectives eugenics and economics in the progressive era by thomas c leonard and this was written in the journal of economic perspectives volume 19 number four fall of 2005. and it's a very good piece i found when i was doing research into the history of eugenics so i want to finish that up today and then what i might do is record a second show and finish up Birth Without Violence. And then going into this week, there's a few articles I want to review that I found in my research on eugenics tied into technocracy. And then we're going to start to slowly dismantle and analyze more of the Technocracy Incorporated documents and tie that into what is going on today. And then we should be recording a show with Wide Awake Jim this week and hopefully Maria Albanese this week, and then a buddy of mine, Dan Golvach, who has been studying the FTX scandal. So we're going to work on trying to get all that done this week during Thanksgiving and continue to push this valuable content out to you, because I know so many of you are starting to plan. And thank you for those reached out based on the suggestions we gave yesterday on starting to think about realistic solutions to the problems we face. Again, the formula is one, educate yourself and others. Two, insulate yourself from the coming collapse. Three, separate yourself from densely populated areas. Four, congregate with like-minded people individuals. Maybe think about building a breakaway community. And five, accelerate. Put your foot on the gas because the technocrats and the transhumanists are coming at us at warp speed. And so if we want to try to insulate ourselves and separate ourselves and congregate with other like-minded folks, we need to accelerate those plans. We can't keep sitting back. Every time that these folks put a boot on our neck We're so worried, we're so determined, we're so upset, and then they slightly lift that boot from our neck to give us a breath, and we think that everything is over, we're going to go back to normal, and that's not the case. So really start to think about what you're going to do. Start writing down your current options, start writing down your goals, and then start to figure out how you get from where you are now to the goal you want to reach the moves you have to make, the sacrifices you're going to have to make in order to get yourself out of the position that you are currently in. That is the most realistic way to approach this stuff, folks. Hoping for it, dreaming about it, hoping it will all go away, that that's not realistic. It's not realistic. You know the plans. You know what these guys are doing. So start working on your plans, your exit strategy from this system. Because I'm telling you, the rug pull is coming, and it's not going to go back to normal. Even though Trump is running, folks, it's not going to change a thing. In fact, if they put him back in power, it will be for the purpose of further accelerating more technocracy. That's my belief. All right. I'm going to pull this document back up on the screen, ladies and gentlemen, and I'm going to pick up where we left off. We were talking about unemployment under this section, eugenics uh, effects of minimum wage laws, and we see that minimum wage was designed for the purpose of pushing eugenics. It says progressive economists, like their neoclassical critics, believe that binding minimum wages would cause job losses. However, the progressive economists also believed that the job loss-induced minimum wages was a social benefit as it performed the eugenics service, ridding the labor force of the, quote, unemployable, end quote. Sidney and Patrice Webb, this is back in 1897, put it plainly, quote, with regard to certain sections of the population, the unemployable, this unemployment is not a mark of social disease, but actually of social health. Of all ways of dealing with these unfortunate parasites, end quote, Sidney Webb in 1912 opined in the Journal of Political Economy, quote, the most ruinous to the community is to allow them to unrestrainedly compete as wage earners, end quote. A minimum wage was seen to operate eugenically through two channels by deterring prospective immigrants, And this came from 1900. And also by removing from employment the, quote, unemployable, end quote, who thus identified could be, for example, segregated in rural communities or sterilized. So, again, folks, the idea was to raise the minimum wage, therefore making an employer say to themselves, you know, Bob isn't worth $5 an hour. I was paying Bob $3 an hour. Now I have to pay him $5 an hour. So I'm going to just fire Bob, right? Now, Bob is unemployable. He's deemed as unfit. And the eugenicist could just take him and send him off to some concentration camp or sterilize him, okay, chemically castrate him. And that's it for Bob. So now you see the thinking that went behind this uh, progressive ideology. It goes on to say the notion that minimum wage-induced disemployment is a social benefit distinguishes its progressive proponents from their neoclassical critics, such as Alfred Marshall in 1897, Philip Wicksteed in 1913. A.C. Pigou in 1913 and John Bates Clark in 1913, who regarded job loss as a social cost of minimum wages, not as a putative social benefit. Columbia's Henry Rogers Seeger, a leading progressive economist who served as president of the AEA in 1922 provides an example. Now, there you go, right? So you've got this Henry Rogers Seeger also coming out of Colombia. A lot of stuff was going on in Colombia. We have technocracy coming out of Colombia. We have some eugenics coming out of Colombia. We have FDR's brain trust that developed the New Deal coming out of Colombia. All right, so a lot of stuff happening in Colombia. Also, at the same time, IBM was there in the early stages of what would later be the Watson computer, which uh, actually helped the Nazis. It goes on to say worthy wage earners. Seeger, this is in 1913, argued need protection from the, quote, wearing competition of the casual worker And the drifter, end quote, and from other, quote, unemployable, end quote, who unfairly drag down the wages of more deserving workers. He said this in 1913. The minimum wage protects deserving workers from the competition of the unfit by making it illegal to work for less. So, see how they socially engineer. So, minimum wage laws were the social engineering technique forcing employers to abide by certain laws and then firing all of these people they paid less than what was the new minimum wage and then those people they fire are deemed unemployable or unfit and that they can then genocide them right you see how this works all engineering folks very intelligent very smart the way they come up with this, but this is manipulation. This is how they do it. Seeger, in 1913, wrote, quote, The operation of the minimum wage requirement would merely extend the definition of defectives to embrace all individuals, who even after having received special training, remain incapable of adequate self-support, end quote. Seeger made clear what should happen to those who even after remedial training could not earn the legal minimum quote if we are to maintain a race that is to be made of up of capable what the hell is that's an error there it says quote if we are to maintain a race that is to be made up of capable efficient and independent individuals and family groups we must courageously cut off lines of heredity that have been proved to be undesirable by isolation or sterilization like do you see this this was this was spoken about openly Back in the day, Woodrow Wilson, President Woodrow Wilson spoke about this. President Theodore Roosevelt spoke about this stuff. Um, No different than today. I mean, we hear Peter Thiel talk about it. We hear Elon Musk talk about it. We hear Klaus Schwab. We hear Yuval Noah Harari. So they talk about this stuff out in the open. It was no different back then than it is today. But most people want to just look to World Economic Forum and think that these things are new. This is not new, folks. This goes back to the late 1800s right here in the United States. It says, the unemployable were those... Uh, were thus those workers who earned less than some measure of an adequate standard of living. A standard the British called a, quote, decent maintenance, end quote, and Americans referred to as, quote, a living wage, end quote. For labor reformers, firms that paid workers less than the living wage to which they were entitled were deemed parasitic, As were the workers who accepted such wages on grounds that someone, charity, state, other members of the household would need to make up the difference. All right. So go back 100 years ago, really, 125 years ago. And it's the same thing. They called it a living wage, right? We need a living wage. Well, you hear that in campaign ads today. So we're just in this recycled rinse, repeat cycle. It's just this loop that we live inside of. And so as you look at these people that are working below this living wage, they are now deeming them to be parasites because the difference would have to be made up through charity, through the state or through other members of the household. But what ends up happening? The state drives people out of work and then it offers them Uh, welfare it actually incentivizes them not to work that's what universal basic income is folks they are going to pay people whatever it be a thousand dollars two thousand dollars a thousand energy credits a thousand carbon credits whatever it may be they're going to pay you not to work andrew yang who ran as president under the Democrat Party in 2020 and was backed and endorsed by Elon Musk, was pushing universal basic income. He is the person who was chosen to bring that into the American lexicon, and his entire campaign was based on the fact that robots and artificial intelligence were coming to replace you, or your son, or your daughter, or your grandkids, and therefore it was only fair for the elites who were going to replace you to give you a check of a thousand dollars or two thousand dollars or whatever it may be so you see it's always this social engineering and now they're socially engineering people into accepting that they're going to be replaced by the robots you'll get the ubi the only way to make a difference is to then merge with the robots through a brain chip or whatever other means they're going to offer at that time but you see this same kind of stuff going on back here in the late 1800s early 1900s folks it was there all along See, no one really understands the history of our country, and they don't understand technocracy and transhumanism and the histories of those two respective schools of thought they don't understand it and so if people did everything that we're looking at today would not be a surprise to them because you would realize this business plan has been in the works for well over a century ladies and gentlemen i'll be right back this is dust gold with the dust gold standard right here on pain.tv slash gold
0: you listening to the dust and gold standard on pain.tv Join the discussion at pain.tv slash gold. You're listening to the Dustin Gold Standard on pain.tv.
1: All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Dustin Gold Standard. I am Dustin Gold, and you are listening to me right here. On pain.tv slash gold. All right, folks, feel free to reach out to us at the email gold at pain.tv. You can hit me up and direct message at pain.tv slash gold or any of the social media accounts listed in the description of this podcast. All right, folks, let's continue with this article because I really want to try to wrap this up today. It says, for progressives, A legal minimum wage had the useful property of sorting the unfit who would lose their jobs from the deserving workers who would retain their jobs. Royal Meeker, a Princeton economist who served as Woodrow Wilson's U.S. Commissioner of Labor, opposed a proposal to subsidize the wages of poor workers for this reason meeker preferred a wage floor because it would disemploy unfit workers and thereby enable their culling from the workforce quote it is much better to enact a minimum wage law even if it deprives these unfortunates of work end quote argued meeker in 1910 quote better that the state should support the inefficient wholly and prevent the multiplication of the breed than subsidize incompetence and unthrift, enabling them to bring forth more of their kind end quote. Let's repeat that: Better that the state should support the inefficient wholly and prevent the multiplication of the breed than subsidize incompetence and unthrift, enabling them to bring forth more of their kind end quote. Wow wow i mean just to see the mentality of these folks a.b wolf this is in 1917 an american progressive economist who later became president of the aea in 1943 also argued for the eugenic virtues of removing from employment those who quote are a burden on society end quote now my question is And I haven't dug really deep into this yet. If these people were working, if they were employed below whatever they call the living wage, I mean, they were employed. Someone did find value in the service these folks provided, right? Some employer obviously employed them. So their job was to now make sure these people didn't work. Again, deeming them unemployable or unfit, well, of course, you drove them out of the workforce so that then they can offer up the solution of putting them in concentration camps or sterilizing them. Uh, Some even advocated for killing them. So you see how this works, folks? I mean, so they're engineering the conclusion. So they're driving these people out of the workforce. It says, in his Principles of Economics, Frank Tossig in 1921, asked rhetorically, quote, how to deal with the unemployable, end quote. Tossig identified two classes of unemployable worker, distinguishing the aged, infirm, and disabled from the, quote, feeble-minded those saturated with alcohol or tainted with a hereditary disease and the irretrievable criminals and tramps end quote. the latter class tossic proposed quote should simply be stamped out end quote quote we have not reached the stage end quote Tossack allowed quote where we can proceed to chloroform them once and for all but at least they can be segregated shut up in refuges and asylums and prevented from propagating their kind. All right, this is Frank Tosik. All right, we're reading about here. I mean, did you hear what I just read to you? This is in a book, Principles of Economics, that we should just stamp them out. We're not at the stage where we can just chloroform them once and for all, but at least we can segregate them lock them up in asylums and then prevent them from propagating their kind from having children this is the history of the united states do you understand this so when we're talking about restoring the republic what reality are you living in where was our country so great and so grand i i just don't know it hasn't been for a long time so if we're going to go back to the founding then we also have to go back to slavery. If we're going to go back to the founding, then only white landowning men can vote. I mean, all of those things that changed since the founding are what changed the country into the horrible country that you hate today. I mean, look at this stuff. This is 125 years ago, mainstream ideology, to literally engineer people out of the workforce and then lock them up in asylums or uh, sterilize them or kill them, you know, or uh, just choke them to death with chloroform. I mean, this is real stuff, folks. I hope you realize this. This is the type of stuff that our presidents were talking about. It goes on to say, the progressive idea that the unemployable could not earn a living wage was bound up with the progressive view of wage determination. Unlike the economists who pioneered the still novel marginal uh, productivity theory, most progressives agreed that wages should be determined by the amount that was necessary to provide a reasonable standard of living, not by productivity, and that the cost of this entitlement should fall on firms. Okay, so again, this is economists. Now, I showed you and I begin to show you the overlap of these progressive era economists with the scientists and engineers. They're essentially working on the same goals here. So the technocrats introduce later what, you, which is the energy certificate which solves a lot of these problems because you are not looked at as an individual and the skills that you offer are are not looked at as better than anyone else's skills. And the creativity that you bring to the table is just thrown in the dumpster. There is no creativity allowed inside of the technocracy. Okay, so what they're saying is now everyone here should really be equal. You should be given just a living wage to live within the system. The thing with the eugenesis and these economists, they didn't really have the system figured out yet. That's what came later. That's what I believe Technocracy Incorporated was all about, beginning to actually figure out the system in which this whole ideology would operate so it goes on, but how should a living wage be determined? Were workers with more dependents and thus higher living expenses, thereby entitled to higher wages? Arguing that wages should be a matter of an appropriate standard of living opened the door in this era of eugenics to theories of wage determination that were grounded in biology, in particular to the idea that, quote, low-wage races, end quote, were biologically predisposed to low wages or, quote, underliving, end quote. Edward A. Ross in 1936 wrote, uh, or Edward A. Ross, this is 1936. He's a proponent of race suicide theory. Argued that quote, the coolie cannot outdo the American, but he can uh, underlive him. End quote. Quote, native end quote workers have higher productivity, claim Ross, but because Chinese immigrants are racially disposed to work for lower wages, they displace the native workers. All right, so they were figuring all this out back then, really going through a lot of the stuff we would talk about in modern politics, right? But it's the same arguments being made, and in the end, they could have just closed the borders and turned away ships full of immigrants. It would have been that easy, really. But no, they have to start getting into this idea of sterilizing people, locking them in cages, let's engineer them out of the workforce, then deem them to be unfit, and then chloroform them, I mean, this is just wild. It's wild. I mean, we'd never learn this in the public school system. Did you ever learn this? I mean, I've read about this stuff over the years. I researched eugenics probably 14, 15 years ago on my own. But did you ever learn this in the public school system? I don't think so. It goes on to say, in his Races and Immigrants, this is a book, Races and Immigrants, the University of Wisconsin economist and social reformer John R. Commons argued that wage competition not only lowers wages, it also selects for the unfit races. Quote, the competition has no respect for the superior races, end quote, said Commons in 1907. Quote, the race with lowest necessities displaces others, end quote. Because race rather than productivity determined living standards, Commons could populate his low-wage races category with the industrious and lazy alike. African Americans were, for Commons, a quote, Uh, "...indolent and fickle," end quote, which explained why Commons argued slavery was required. Quote, "...the Negro could not possibly have found a place in American industry had he come as a free man. Such races are to adopt that industrious life which is second nature to races of the temperate zones. It is only through some form of compulsion," end quote. Similarly, Wharton School reformer Scott Neering. now remember Scott Neering inspired Rexford Guy Tugwell, who was the lead thinker on the brain trust that gave us FDR's New Deal. He was also a uh, fan of Thorstein Veblen, who inspired Howard Scott, uh, who created Technocracy. All right. So similarly, Wharton School reformer Scott Nearing in 1915 volunteered that if, quote, an employer has a Scotchman working for him at three dollars a day an equally efficient Lithuanian offers to do the same work for two dollars, the work is given to the low bidder, end quote. Well, that's what happens sort of in free market capitalism. Now, we could argue about the race to the bottom which you see today, right? So people sell their products uh, through places like Amazon, these trading hubs. And at the end of the day, it might be a $100 item. And it gets down to who's going to be willing to make one penny on the item. Because the guy who wants to make $0.05 on the item or $0.10 or $0.20 is uh, pushed out of the market because it's a race to the bottom. So we could argue about the race to the bottom and immigrants coming in and doing jobs for cheaper just like today with the H-1 visa programs or illegals coming in working under the table doing construction instead of paying an American worker or someone here illegally. But see, you can argue that all on immigration law and border security. Secure the border and stop bringing in immigrants until every American has a job. But no, that's never the answer. So these guys start talking about how to genocide people. All right, when I get back, we're going to talk more about this because there's a long way to go in this document, but I think it is really important. This is invaluable information, and I, and I seriously challenge you, even though you might not get anywhere, but if you want to kill a little time uh, in between writing down your solutions, working on your options to escape the matrix, you know, prod someone that identifies on the left and try to inform them of these progressive era economists. Start to just prime them and telling them what geniuses they were. Were, the progressives were so correct, and get them to go along with you and say, yes, 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 the progressive era professors were so wonderful, wonderful people, and then start to tell them about how they wanted to chloroform immigrants and chloroform people they deemed to be unfit and how they were going to use minimum wage laws to drive these people out of the workforce for the purpose of then calling them unemployable, which leads to being unfit or feeble-minded. And then those people would be locked up in cages or asylums or sterilized or... You know, chloroformed and murdered. Yeah, let them know what the progressive era economists and the technocratic scientists and engineers were doing and thinking about humanity. Let them know that's the history of their party. That's the history of their ideology. All right, ladies and gentlemen, I'll be right back. This is Dustin Gold with the Dustin Gold Standard right here on pain.tv slash gold. You're listening to the Dustin Gold Standard on pain.tv.
0: Join the discussion at pain.tv slash gold. You are listening to the Dustin Gold Standard on pain.tv.
1: Ladies and gentlemen, I am Dustin Gold. Welcome back to Payne.tv slash gold. You are listening to the Dustin Gold Standard. Right here, folks, right here on Payne.tv slash gold. All right, let's continue here. So much information and so little time, folks, so little time goes on to say, when U.S. labor reformers reported on labor legislation in countries more precocious with respect to labor reform, they favorably commented on the eugenic efficacy of minimum wages in excluding the, quote, low-wage races, end quote, from work. Harvard's Arthur Holcomb, uh, 1912, a member of the Massachusetts Minimum Wage Commission, Referred approvingly to the intent of Australia's minimum wage law to, quote, protect the white Australian's standard of living from the invidious competition of the colored races, particularly of the Chinese, end quote. Florence Kelly this is in 1911, perhaps the most influential U.S. labor reformer of the day also endorsed the Australian minimum wage law as, quote, redeeming the sweated trades, end quote, by preventing the, quote, unbridled competition, end quote, of the unemployable, the, quote, women, children, and Chinese who were reducing all the employees to starvation, end quote. For these progressives, race determined the standard of living and the standard of living determined the wage. Thus were immigration restriction and labor legislation, especially minimum wages, justified for their eugenic effects. Now, if you want to talk about immigration restriction, that's fine. I think that's actually one of the things that should be on the table. Uh, But again, to raise minimum wage, to force people out of the workforce, to then deem them unfit, to then be able to kill them. That's something completely different. And remember, the majority of these guys that we've talked about and stuff that I've researched and I'll introduce in the coming episodes, they weren't doing this to protect you and me. They weren't saying, oh, Dustin and Billy out there are natives of America, and so we need to protect them. No, they wanted to end up breeding this really fit. They called it this fit workforce you know, so that we could provide back into the system. Remember, the technocrats came up with the formula on the human engine and deemed us to be inefficient. So we were even an enemy to them. It's not like they're doing this to protect you or I. That's why I always say the government does not love me. So anything they try to offer me, any regulation, any executive order, any law that they say is to protect me, I don't want anything to do with it. I'm more than capable uh, of taking care of myself. So I don't need some group of people, a bunch of elitists, a bunch of prison planet wardens, a bunch of social engineering class deviants to come and tell me that they're going to protect me because they love me, because I know they don't love me. They want to kill me. Everything they do is designed to destroy us. So anytime they're offering up something to say that they want to protect you, you know it's a lie and you need to run for cover. It goes on to say, invidious distinction, whether founded on the putatively greater fertility of the unfit or upon their putatively greater predisposition to low wages, lay at the heart of the reforms we today see as the hallmark of the progressive era. All right, this next section is the popularity and appeal of eugenics. Let's delve into this, folks. Again, it's important to understand the history, and then you'll have a clear understanding of where we are in the present, and that will allow you to sort of predict where we're going to be 3, 4, 5, 10, 20 years from now. The popularity and appeal of eugenics. For modern readers, the Progressive Era relationship between American reform and the biology of human inheritance is doubly unexpected. First, that eugenics was so popular and respectable. And second, that so many progressive economists should have been attracted to eugenic explanations. Let us consider these surprises in turn. The popularity of eugenics, quote, eugenics, end quote, is a dirty word in contemporary discourse, largely because of its association with the eugenic atrocities of German national socialism those are the nazis folks even professional historians find it difficult to resist the temptation and to read uh, temptation to read all pre-nazi history of eugenics as a prelude to nazi crimes but progressive era eugenics was in fact the broadest of churches it was mainstream it was popular to the point of faddishness It was supported by leading figures in the newly emerging science of genetics. It appealed to an extraordinary range of political ideologies, not just progressives, and it survived the Nazis. In 1928, 376 college courses were dedicated to the subject of eugenics. Think about that. In 1928, 376 college courses were dedicated. To eugenics. A single text among many, Searchlights on Health, the Science of Eugenics, sold one million copies in the first two years of its publication. The American Eugenics Society, co founded by Irving Fisher to educate Americans on the virtues of eugenics, set up instructional pavilions and staged, quote, fitter family, end quote, competitions at state agricultural fairs. So see, I told you this stuff was mainstream. It's been mainstream for over a hundred years. Progressive era eugenic ideas were influential in nearly all non-Catholic Western countries and in many others besides. We today have scholarly treatments of eugenics movements in Canada, France, Japan, Russia, Scandinavian countries, Romania, Latin America, and China. In 1933, Paul Popeno, a founder of American uh, demography and a leading eugenicist, could boast that eugenic sterilization laws obtained in jurisdictions comprising 150 million people. Eugenic sentiments could even be found among scholars from traditionally black colleges. Miller worried about the lower fertility of the Howard University professorate quote, the higher element of the Negro race, end quote, when compared with the average African American. See, everyone was in on the game. Why? Because it allows, it's an ideology that allows you to put yourself above someone beneath you. And then you literally get to talk about how you can sterilize these people, isolate them, murder them. It makes you feel like you're better than others. But people always forget in a system like this, there is always someone who is going to be above them. Right? So you may deem someone to be unfit, but tomorrow you are the unfit. Tomorrow you get chemically castrated. Tomorrow you get a rag of chloroform over your face until you suffocate to death. You see? This is how a system like this works. This is what progressivism is all about. I've told you many times. I'm going to review Saul Alinsky here for you, and I'm going to show you his idea of progressivism. It is a system that eats itself alive. And Alinsky was not interested in solving problems. Alinsky was interested in his personal goal of bringing hell on earth. He said that he grew up as a have-not, and now he wanted to see the have suffer, and so he would be fine with bringing hell on earth. So the system of progressivism ends up eating itself alive, and that's why I tie this into the idea of engineering humanity out of existence. It's never-ending. There is no stated goal. It just moves The goalposts keep moving and moving and moving to the point where everything is destroyed, where we destroy the natural world, where we destroy humanity itself. It goes on to say, eugenics found advocates whose ideologies span the entire political spectrum the eugenics movement attracted some reactionaries and conservatives leading eugenicists such as Francis Galton and Charles Davenport director of the eugenics record office at the Cold Spring Harbor Laboratory can be described as social conservatives but others such as Carl Pearson were socialists eugenics won many advocates on the left such as birth control advocate Margaret Sanger who began intellectual life as a radical anarchist and will eventually do some shows on Margaret's Sanger because she does play an instrumental role in all of this in fact folks she was using black preachers to preach some of this stuff to their churches without actually telling them what the real plan was she actually wrote about it in one of her books how she would never let them in on the little secret that they were trying to weed out black people from society again Do your friends on the left know this? Do they understand the true history of progressivism, the history of eugenics? Do people on the right, if you're a conservative, do you understand that there were conservatives involved in this movement? Do you understand that today the modern eugenics movement, transhumanism, has so-called conservatives behind it? Yeah, Peter Thiel. He backs so called manga candidates. He backed Donald Trump. He is a big pusher of singularity, the merger of man and machine. He is someone working on immortality for the elites. He is someone who supports transhumanism. Therefore, he is a eugenicist. Now, you can say he's not conservative like I do, but he's backing so called conservative candidates based on whatever the definition of conservatism is today. All right. It goes on to say, Fabian socialists such as Sidney Webb, George Bernard Shaw, and H.G. Wells were eugenicists, as were Harold Lasky and John Maynard Ke- uh, Keynes. Uh, the Marxist economist Scott Neering, again, uh, this guy inspired uh, Rexford. Guy Tugwell, who was the big thinker on the brain trust that brought us FDR's New Deal, which was really the introduction of technocracy into the mainstream, but the Marxist economist Scott Neering and the feminist economist Charlotte Perkins Gilman also embrace eugenics. Many biologists were drawn to eugenics. For example, David Starr Jordan, president of Stanford, was a tireless advocate of the eugenic idea that, quote, the blood of nation determines its history, end quote, as was Harvard geneticist and eugenicist E.M. East. In fact, Paul and Spencer report that before the 1930s, Thomas Hunt Morgan, pioneer in fruit fly studies and Nobel laureate in physiology and medicine in 1933, was the only geneticist to reject publicly the eugenicist idea that socially undesirable traits were the product of bad heredity. So you see right here, this guy, Thomas Hunt Morgan, this pioneer in fruit fly studies, Fruit fly studies. Give me a break. Uh, anyway, this guy was the only geneticist to reject this idea of eugenics. Ladies and gentlemen, I need to take a short break. I want you to think about that, really. Try to understand that this idea of eugenics spanned so-called party lines, folks, and this is growing. It's growing in parallel to the ideas of technocracy. They're rising at the same time. So you have eugenics or transhumanism rising right alongside this science of social engineering, the science of total control of the means of production and the means of distribution called technocracy. So technocracy and eugenics are rising together at the same time. The bankers are putting the Federal Reserve into place. All this is coming together. This new system. The system that you actually live under today, not the constitutional republic you believe it is. Ladies and gentlemen, I'll be right back. This is Dustin Gold with the Dustin Gold Standard right here on pain.tv slash gold.
0: More listening to the Dustin Gold Standard on pain.tv. Join the discussion at pain.tv slash gold. You're listening to the Dustin Gold Standard on Pain.tv.
1: Alrighty folks, it's Dustin Gold with the Dustin Gold Standard right here on Pain.tv slash gold, and we are working through this fantastic paper on the history of eugenics in the progressive era going back to the late 1800s early 1900s very important to understand your history very 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 important it puts a lot of things in context does it not if you understand what the game plan was when all this stuff was created then you could start to look around and you could say okay that makes a lot of sense all right the policies we see in effect today the culture we see that surrounds us today you will be able to step back truly and see the matrix code that's what i want people to see just to stop in the middle of a grocery store step back for a minute and see that matrix code come trickling down and you'll go wow i see where that came from i understand that Okay, I see the mom over there jam a pacifier into her little baby's mouth and hand it an iPad. That seems kind of strange. Where did it come from? And you'll start to understand. We were engineered into this system. And it has its origins in eugenics, its origins in technocracy. But you'll find that the bankers are behind it as usual. We're going to cover more of that here before Wide Awake Jim comes back. And then he's going to get into this and how they do it right out of the Bank for International Settlements and then using BlackRock, Vanguard, State Street to control all these so-called publicly traded companies. And then how they introduce wokeness and they introduce transhumanism. They introduce climate change. They introduce all this stuff is really all part of the technocratic system. All right, let's continue. Why did eugenics appeal to the progressives? Eugenic ideas were not new in the progressive era, but they acquired new impetus with the progressive era advent of a more expansive government. In effect, the expansion of state power meant that it became possible to, not, uh, to have not only eugenic thought, but also eugenic practice. As eugenics historian Diane Paul in 1995 writes, eugenics legislation had to await, quote, the rise of the welfare state, end quote. All right? Now, is this making sense to you? Because everything that we covered earlier today and yesterday, all about creating this minimum wage, driving people out of the workforce, the state then providing welfare, then able to deem these people unfit, then you could actually engineer their activities, because if the state is going to give you welfare, the state can then tell you what you have to do. And a lot of this will come into play with all of the modern stuff. Uh, researcher Allison McDowell has talked a lot about this, these social impact bonds, and we're going to eventually get into that. Hopefully I can get her on the show because she really is the expert in that. But you see that it's all about engineering. So they create the problem, this welfare state, and they provoke these reactions, and then they offer the solution, in this case being – Eugenics. So you see this time and time again. The social engineering comes in part from the Hegelian dialect, the problem-reaction-solution loop. All right, it goes on to say, Progressives were drawn to eugenics by the same set of intellectual commitments that drew them to reform legislation. Paramount was the reform idea that laissez-faire was bankrupt. Sidney Webb in 1910 said flatly, quote, No consistent eugenicist can be a laissez-faire individualist unless he throws up the game in despair he must interfere 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 end quote right so this idea of individualism this idea of equality that all goes out the window with the technocracy government blueprints all right so they get rid of this idea of individualism howard scott actually said this, the founder of technocracy. There is no individualism inside of technocracy. So they take that away from you. And it's a system all built around big government, all built around the state. And the state then has the power, because it has centralized power over everyone, to implement eugenics and technocracy and everything else. So, As you can see, they're talking about here, back in the early 1900s, that they weren't in a position to implement a lot of this because the state didn't have total power yet. Well, as I told you, it's very dangerous what the modern-day technocrats and transhumanists talk about, like Elon Musk, Peter Thiel, and the rest of them, because now the government does have total power, the state does have centralized control, really building it into a world government. They're close to basically rolling that out in full force okay and so now they have the power but not just the power they actually have the technology to do this at such a mass scale now the prison planet technology facial scanning then combine that in with the ability to do dna hacking and gene splicing all right it goes on to say similarly frank fetter and this is in 1907, pronounced at the AEA meetings, quote, unless effective means are found to check the degeneration of the race, the noontime of humanity's greatness is nigh, if not already passed. Our optimism must be based not upon laissez-faire, end quote, said letter, quote, but upon vigorous application of science, humanity, and legislative art to the solution, of the problem, vigorous application of science, humanity, and legislative art, okay, as a solution of the problem. So, science, you see, science and engineering, then he's talking about humanity, which is really anti humanity, <laughs> and then legislative art, all right, folks. Progressive opposition to laissez faire was motivated by a set of deep intellectual commitments regarding the relationship between social science, social scientific expertise, and right governance. The progressives were committed to, one, the explanatory power of scientific, especially statistical social inquiry, to get at the root causes of social and economic problems. And and now you'll understand why someone like Yuval Noah Harari, the king philosopher to the World Economic Forum, the right-hand man to Klaus Schwab, one of the big thinkers of the false industrial revolution, you'll understand why Yuval Noah Harari talks about data. Data is the new gold. Property used to be the most valuable, but now it's data and those who control the data will be the gods of the new era. Even back then, this is what the scientists and engineers were after. This is what Howard Scott was working on, collecting more data. All right, number two, the legitimacy of social control, which derives from a holistic conception of society as prior to and greater than the sum of its constituent individuals. All right, let's read that one more time. Number two. The legitimacy of social control, social control, which derives from a holist conception of society as prior to and greater than the sum of its constituent individuals, so collectivism, and and remember, we saw this coming out of the eugenesis that this idea of equality should be crushed by social progress and so social control this is a uh, system of social control total control they want control over everything and that brings us right into where we are in the present with the fourth industrial revolution the merger of the biological physical and digital worlds they want control over all aspects right over all aspects and they want to merge them so that they can manage them easier From a central hub, they want to upload their software into everything and be able to manage everything. Number three, the efficacy of social control via expert management of public administration. Expert management of public administration, where four expertise is both sufficient and necessary for the task of wise. Public administration. So, what they're talking about there is the idea of technocracy, where the scientists, the engineers, the technologists, the experts run society. Now, we all hate, I would imagine, our elected officials. Most people do, right? But at least in the broken system of a constitutional republic, you do elect people that are supposedly your representatives, right? Supposedly a constituency of folks elects a representative to go represent their interest in Washington or in your respective state capital, right? But in this system, there isn't even the illusion of that. You just have scientists and engineers running the entire system under complete and total social control. It is no accident that so many notable eugenicists were pioneers in statistics. Francis Galton, Carl Pearson, and Ronald A. Fisher were all founders of modern statistics and were, in addition, leading lights in the eugenics movement. Many proponents of eugenics and economics were also statistically oriented. Francis Amaza Walker, Richmond Mayo-Smith, irving fisher and walter wilcox were all statisticians by training and or by inclination they regarded statistical measurement and inference as the method that put the quote science end quote in social science all right so all students of data Data, data, data. This is how they want to control everything based on science. And what happens when you move into this system completely and totally controlled by science, by data, by statistics, is you remove all human aspects Uh, from this world. Humanity, individualism, equality, all these things are removed. All this natural law is removed when you create a system managed completely like a science experiment. And that's what these guys wanted to do. Leave nothing up to chance. No magic of life, no magic of nature. Everything needs to be controlled. Look at all of the plants that we have now, all the vegetables, all the fruits. They're genetically modified. Nothing left up to nature anymore. They want total control, control of everything. Just think about it like the competition between um, Apple and Microsoft, right? Microsoft wanted to upload its operating system into all the computers. Apple was trying to keep theirs as a closed system, but Microsoft would have loved to upload software into Apple's. They want to put their software into everything, in the physical, the biological, and the digital worlds. And this was already being thought about back here 125 years ago. Carl Pearson's, quote, bricks for the foundations, end quote, this was in 1909, of eugenics emphasized statistical methods as the guarantor of better social science. Quote, first, we depart from the old sociology in that we desert verbal discussion for statistical facts. And second, we apply new methods of statistics, which form practically a new calculus, end quote. American progressives also saw statistics as providing a scientific foundation for their legislative reforms. Said reformer Lester Ward in 1915, quote, If laws of social events could be statistically formulated, they could be used for scientific lawmaking, end quote. Now, you have to ask yourself, if you and I want to build, let's say, this breakaway civilization, And in our minds, or at least on paper, let's say, we agree on what that whole project is going to look like when it's done. There's, I don't know, 100 houses on three acres each. Then there's 100 acres of designated land for this community development farm, this uh, community-supported farm that we all own a piece of. On the other end, there's going to be you know, a pool house and stuff like that. Then there's going to be a big tech center where you could go to work and you can have a shared office space that you get for living in the community. So on paper, we all agree on what that is supposed to look like and then we can sit there and debate on how we're going to get there and you could say listen i had experience in construction and i could say well i have experience in design and we could put all our skills out there and then we come up with the best solution the cheapest way to get there the most efficient way to get there Uh, the uh, quickest way to get there. And we could debate those things, but we're working towards a similar goal. When you look at what these folks were doing, these progressive era economists, the uh, technocratic scientists and engineers, the system they're trying to get to at the end is not the same system that you and I want. So we're not debating policies on how to get there. right? So you could say, well, uh, I don't agree with your methods of sterilizing people or locking people in cages, but we do agree in the end result. So I'm willing to compromise that the uh, end justifies the means. Even though I don't want to do this, the end justifies the means. I think your solution will get us there faster. Well, they're not laying out a system in which we agree on. They want a system of total control, a system where the scientists and engineers engineer the actual outcomes of the system. So we're not even on the same page. We're not talking about the methods to achieve the same goal. We're talking about moving in two completely different directions. And I think part of what we have to think about here, and we have to define in our own heads, in our own hearts, is what is it that we want? So when you say restore the republic or save America— what is it that you want it to be? If we say, let's go build a breakaway civilization, what do we want it to look like? We have to start to define exactly what we're trying to get out of life, exactly where we're trying to go. Because we can't just keep talking in circles about saving this place. There is no saving this place. This place is is the place that we're talking about here with sterilization, uh, with eugenics, with uh, genocide, with technocracy. That's the place we're in. We have to leave that place and go form something else, but we need to start talking about exactly what we want so we can get on the same page and decide if we want to go form a breakaway community together. That's what I think we need to start thinking about here, folks, is we're working through this, and we probably don't want these kind of people coming to our community. I don't want anyone who is looking to run a system of total control. I'm looking for individualism. I'm looking for folks who want to pick themselves up by their bootstraps, people who want to make it on their own, people that are willing to accept the consequences of their own failures. But I also want to live amongst people who are willing to help each other out to help teach each other, to help uh, protect each other when they're down. Somebody gets hurt and they're out of work for a couple months, we're the neighbors. We come and help you out, man. We'll rake your lawn. We'll bring you some dinner. Those are the kind of people you want to live amongst. Those are the kind of people I want to live amongst. And we built a group of those type of folks during this home birth process. So I know they're out there and I know they exist. Ladies and gentlemen, I won't exist in about 10 seconds because I'm going to a short break. I'll be right back. This is Dustin Goldberg the dust and gold standard right here on pain.tv slash gold
0: more listening to the Dustin gold standard on pain.tv join the discussion at pain.tv slash gold more listening to the Dustin gold standard on pain.tv
1: Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Dustin Gold Standard. I am Dustin Gold, and you are listening to pain.tv slash gold. All right, folks, let's uh, continue with this. I think we're going to be able to finish this up today, which is fantastic, because I've got some... Other articles we need to review on technocracy and eugenics, and we're going to be able to start to tie some of these pieces together. And I'm going to start to break this all down for you. I'm working on some timelines, and I want to show you really a clear, clear picture of uh, the late 1800s to the early 1900s, and really start to be able to tie this into what's going on today and show you that this all exists. We're here. We're in the middle of it. This is not something that's coming. We're in it. We live in it. We just don't know it. All right. It goes on to say the progressives also believe strongly in the legitimacy of, quote, social control, end quote, a catchphrase of progressive era reformers, as it was for their successors, the institutionalists, quote, social control, end quote, did not refer narrowly to state regulation of markets. Edward A. Ross in 1901, who popularized the term employed it in a broader sociological sense to describe the various ways in which society, quote, can mold the individual to the necessity of the group, end quote, which in the context context of eugenics meant a, quote, program for survival, end quote, of the Anglo-Saxon race. All right, so it's important to understand that. In which society can mold the individual to the necessity of the group. See, no individualism. You're being socially engineered, if not genetically engineered, to fit into the system. The system, the group... The system of total control, it's in the eyes of those in charge, right? This is why the scientists and engineers wanted to be in charge of all this, because it's going to be them who decides exactly what you're going to be in order to fit into their system of total control. The legitimacy of social control meant, in practice, the legitimacy of state control, For progressives, the legitimacy of state control derived from their conception of the state as an entity prior to and greater than the sum of its constituent individuals, a conception that opposed the traditional liberal emphasis on individual freedom and the liberal view that the state's legitimacy derives solely from the consent of its individual creators. Lester Ward devised the term, quote, sociocracy, end quote, to describe the, quote, scientific control of the social forces by the collective mind of society, end quote. Now, let me just explain this, because I don't know how many people know this, don't know this, uh, whatever it may be. About 20, what, 20, 25 years ago, the left started to call themselves liberals and the so-called right the conservatives would refer to the left as liberals uh like dan bongino even still says oh we're owning the libs we're owning the libs see we gave these psychopaths uh these communists these socialists these marxists these folks that just want total control the ability to use a term liberal that actually meant nothing it, it, it had nothing to do with what they were so go back to the origins here uh when they're talking about the progressives and we also would start to call progressives liberals as if the two things meant the same thing and it doesn't the progressives you can see what they're all about a system of total control the real liberals the classical liberals were really the thomas jeffersons of the world that talked about individual liberty um human autonomy, freedom, right? And that's not what these guys are about. Obviously, you can see the progressives are the furthest thing away from freedom. They want to develop a system, a state, which has total control and socially and genetically engineers everyone within that system to conform to the system, right? The furthest thing from liberals. So as you can see, just a teaching moment there, how words are stolen over time. Just like the rainbow, it used to mean happiness. Now it means gay, which, by the way, gay also meant happiness. So there you go. Everything gets twisted and turned upside down, folks. It goes on to say the progressives, somewhat anti-democratic impulses, also led them to believe that academic experts were both sufficient and necessary for the task of wise public administration because they could – And would suspend their own interest to transcend the messy business of democratic politics. As one widely read eugenics text put it, quote, government and social control are in the hands of expert politicians who have power instead of expert technologists who have wisdom. There should be technologists in control of every field of human need and desire, end quote. And this was quoted from Albert Wiggum's new dialogue, 1923, in Ludmire 1972, right? So Ludmire writes this in 72, he's quoting Albert Wiggum's new uh, decalogue, uh, 1923. So there you go. Back in 1923, they are starting with this idea that the whole system should be put in the hand of these technologists with wisdom. That's when we started to see the rise of technocracy. You see how all the pieces are fitting in together here? It goes on to say, the case for technocratic governance was put badly by Irving Fisher in 1907. "Quote: The world consists of two classes, the educated and the ignorant. And it is essential for progress that the former should be allowed to dominate the latter. Once we admit that it is proper for the instructed classes to give tuition to the uninstructed, we begin to see an almost boundless vista for possible human betterment. Thus were eugenics and progressivism contemporary. uh, Complementary rather than antagonistic trends in the United States during the Progressive Era. It is a temptation to regard progressive thought of a century ago as akin to contemporary progressivism. But Progressive Era progressives viewed the poor and disenfranchised with great ambivalence. Many clearly believe that defective heredity offered a basis for sorting the worthy poor from the unworthy poor, and that uplift of the worthy poor required eugenic control of the unworthy poor. Consider Popeno and Johnson's Very Successful Applied Eugenics, written in 1918, published as part of the social science textbook series edited by Richard T. Eli. Popino and Johnson argued for legislation that would abolish child labor and provide education for all children, quintessentially progressive policies. But compulsory education and child labor bans for Popino and Johnson were desirable because the unfit poor would be unable to put their children to work and thus would have fewer children, a eugenic goal. Indeed Papineau and Johnson opposed free school lunches and textbooks for the poor on the grounds that subsidies of books and lunches would lower the cost of child rearing and thereby increase the number of children born to the unfit. So see, this is where they were advocating for putting policies into place that was all about social engineering. And you still see this going on today. Now, you can agree or disagree with the policies. That's not the point. You just need to understand that this stuff was going on over 100 years ago. It's not new, right? So in the world we live in today, you could incentivize poverty-stricken folks to have more children, uh, by saying, one, don't get married, don't have the uh, baby's dad, daddy around, right? So don't get married, and then we'll give you welfare, we'll give you food stamps, and we'll give you more for each kid you pump out. So they encourage uh, poverty-stricken folks to continue to have more kids. Well, back then they were saying, one, let's make sure that these people don't have jobs. Number two, let's make sure that they... Can't afford the school lunches and the books uh, and, and policies like that, to encourage them to have less children. So to try to weed out these poverty-stricken gene pools by socially engineering these people into the decision-making, and picking the option, uh, the solution to the problems that the technocrats, the eugenicists, wanted them to choose. Alright, so as you can see, this stuff was going on long before the place that we find ourselves today. They've been at work for quite a long time, folks. It says, similarly, Emily Green Balch, a Wes, uh, Wellesley College economist and future winner of the Nobel Peace Prize in 1946 for her role as a peace activist, made the eugenic case against subsidies for poor school children. Quote, if you simply want to have more people, deprave people quite as well as any other class, end quote, said Balch in 1907, then quote, feeding school children is a good thing. But if you believe it is important to have more of the right kind of people, then any measure of encouragement should be most carefully selective in character," end quote. that progressives could oppose subsidies for poor school children reveals the extent to which eugenics informed American progressive era reform right so you see how all this stuff fits in together everything is about social control everything is about social engineering you don't live in a world that's just happenstance this is not organic everything is engineered around you so just think about what we talked about right there while we go to the break and then try to come up with some things in your head today where you can see the social engineering in practice because here you're looking at it in words you're reading the plans of the progressives just a very small amount Of it here, we're just touching the tip of the iceberg, but you can see how calculated they are in their plans to socially engineer and eventually control society, all right, ladies and gentlemen. So, government can actually do that, and why is that because government has the power to hand out the welfare, the food coupons, and everything else, so they can engineer society, so get people hooked on. Uh, their cheap labor job and then engineer them out of their job get people hooked on government assistance and take that away from them well before when people lived out in a cabin in the middle of the woods with no neighbors for miles they would decide how many children they were actually going to have and they would do that based on keeping their family together wanting offspring but see as more government control as the state grew bigger than the state wanted to have control therefore the state had to then engineer the system in which the people that they have power over live inside of you see how that works folks a system of total control i'll be right back this is dustin gold with the dustin gold standard right here on pain.tv slash gold
0: you're listening to the dustin gold standard on pain.tv join the discussion at pain.tv slash gold you are listening to the Dustin Gold Standard on Payne.tv.
1: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back on this Sunday evening, Monday morning, whenever you're listening. This is the Dustin Gold Standard. I am Dustin Gold and you are listening to Pain.tv slash gold. Alright, folks, I'm gonna pull this back up and we're gonna continue working our way through this you're going to have a solid understanding of the progressive era and eugenics by the time we're done again this was a fantastic piece i've read a lot of stuff but this was a great summary it goes on to say what happened to progressive era eugenics american eugenics went into decline in the 1930s increasingly burdened by its political demographic and scientific liabilities Politically, the close association of eugenic ideas with the Nazi regime increasingly discredited American eugenic policies and the newly powerful Catholic Church also opposed eugenics, both because church doctrine forbade interference with conception and because many American Catholics belonged to groups the eugenicists considered unfit. But the progressive era vogue for eugenics was also undone by demographic and scientific developments. Now, I would argue, and we'll see what they say in this paper, paper that eugenics never actually ended, folks. It's a, You see it alive and well today. As we've said several times, it's hidden under CRISPR-Cas9, DNA splicing, gene editing, uh, putting brain chips in people's heads. Uh, You know, transhumanism, that's what it is today. It just progressed. It progressed out of the progressive era into a new brand. It's like a hermit crab that crawls out of its shell and then goes into a new shell. Now, you would not say the hermit crab disappeared. No, the hermit crab rebranded. All right. It goes on to say, Demographically, American eugenics lost impetus from its own handiwork, the race-based immigration quotas of the 1920s, and from the subsequent Depression-era decline in fertility. Already stalled by World War I, the immigration of the Eastern and Southern European peoples, eugenicists deem racially inferior was effectively terminated by eugenics-inspired immigration restrictions. Notably, the Emergency Quota Act of 1921 and the Immigration Act of 1924. The Immigration Act's quotas reduced immigration from Southern and Eastern Europe, which averaged 730,000 people per year in the decade before World War I, to a mere 20,000 persons per year. And when, in the 1930s, when American birth rates dipped below replacement level shrinking population seemed a greater economic threat than differential fertility all right so now they create a whole new set of problems and then they can offer a whole new set of solutions but if you wanted to weed out certain races as i said you just build a border wall and start turning boats away with people and so They started doing this in the 20s, but then they had a situation where they saw birth rates dropping. Well, that's because of a lot of the uh, policies that they put in place on the other side that we just talked about before the break. Scientifically, developments in genetics increasingly made American eugenics preferred method, the development of elaborate family pedigrees, an untenable empirical foundation for eugenic goals. Eugenic scientists such as geneticist Charles Davenport of the Eugenics Record Office built hundreds of pedigrees on the view that inherited traits followed a simple Mendelian logic. That is, that all human traits were determined by a pair of genes, one from each parent. Traits, whether dominant, expressed when either or both parents carried a dominant gene, or recessive, expressed when both parents carried a recessive gene, could be mapped with information about the family tree and with accurate, quote, scoring, end quote, of family members for the presence of absence of the trait. And so we see that practice alive and well with orchid biosciences and these other um, designer baby companies, right? We see that going on today. What they do is they collect a number of embryos and then they run tests on them and they'll come back and tell you all the horrible traits that you have and we could pick the best embryo or we can start to fuse good DNA slices from our catalog of good DNA in with the bad DNA. And before you know it, you're just building a baby on Amazon.com, choosing the eye color, choosing the hair, choosing the nose, choosing the ears. Before you know it, it's not even the human child anymore. So again, this goes to show you Going back over a century ago, they were already working towards this, folks. The single trait, single single-gene-pair template held good for traits, such as Huntington's disease, dominant, or albinism, recessive, which are readily scored and are, in fact, caused by a mutation in a single gene. But progressive-era eugenicists were routinely imprecise in their definition of a trait. Quote, feeble-mindedness, end quote, for example, covered a whole range of mental disabilities whose genetic basis, when it existed, could obviously differ across persons. Other traits eugenicists research, such as, quote, shiftlessness, end quote were fanciful and still others such as intelligence or artistic ability were quite complex making their quote scoring quote a difficult problem it also gave rise to the intelligence testing industry pedigrees also show only that certain human characteristics run in families they cannot establish genetic cause But eugenic scientists ordinarily ignored non-hereditarian causes to the point that Davenport purported to find a genetic basis for, quote, uh, phallosophilia, end quote, or love of the sea. Oh, see that, folks? We learned something new. I didn't know phallosophilia was the love of the sea, but now I know that. Finally, pedigrees are of little help or Polygenetic traits, traits that are determined by the complex interaction of large number of genes. These scientific shortcomings poorly defined, fanciful and complex traits. The unwillingness to address environmental and polygenic causes gradually persuaded American geneticists led by Thomas Hunt Morgan to distance themselves from the eugenic organizations they once embraced. Geneticist Herbert Jennings resigned from the American Eugenics Society. In 1925, a year after writing to Irving Fisher that eugenic societies were no place for men of science. Geneticist Raymond Pearl, this is in 1927, an early eugenic enthusiast, distanced genetics from eugenics in H.L. Mencken's American Mercury, an apostasy that caused the withdrawal of a job offer. From Harvard. However, the slow retreat of geneticists from eugenics organizations was not a repudiation of eugenics per se. If critics among geneticists such as Ronald A. Fisher or Herman Muller increasingly rejected the science behind progressive era eugenics, they did not reject the eugenic ideal. On the contrary, Mueller, for example, imagined that a more sophisticated genetics would place eugenics upon a firmer scientific foundation, better enabling the social direction of human biological evolution. If American eugenics declined under the weight of its political, demographic, and scientific liabilities, the eugenic dream did not. And that's what I'm telling you, folks. It never actually ended eugenics went on it continued it is alive and well today we are seeing it alive and well today they were giving up on their plans for how they were going to introduce it but they still agreed with the goals of eugenics Let's look at the conclusion in this paper. It says, today, genetic screening and sex selection are commonplace, and some call the contemporary applications of human genomic knowledge a new eugenics. But contemporary eugenics, if we may use this term, differs from its progressive era antecedent in two important ways. First, a better understanding of the mechanisms of inheritance has undermine the putative biological significance of race and class the casual identification of race or class with inherited uh, debility still exists but it is far less pervasive today second modern eugenics exceptions like china to one side vest the power to select with families not with the state in today's quote free market end quote in eugenics experts advise but do not compel But it's here, folks. It's here. They don't have to compel you because they can socially engineer you into the right decision. Just like all of the vaccines they want you to give your children. Well, if 99% of people are doing that, I don't think they really are making the wise decision. They were compelled into that decision because they were socially engineered into that decision. And these guys would call it advising, advising you. Quote, this last matter, who shall decide, individual or state, is central to the history of eugenics as it is to the history of economics. For example, even progressives who contemn the identification of race with biological inferiority could remain committed to the idea of eugenic selection and to the idea that the state, not, quote, nature, end quote, should select the fittest, right? The state... Not nature should select the fittest, folks. It is a system of total control, and I told you a hundred times, and I will say it again this is the path we go down the engineering of humanity out of existence. This is a war on humanity. Humans just don't know it yet, folks. What I do know is I'm going to take a short break. I'll be right back. This is Dust Gold with the Dust and Gold Standard right here on pain.tvslash gold.
0: Or listening to the Dustin Gold Standard on Pain.tv. Join the discussion at Pain.tv slash gold. You're listening to the Dustin Gold Standard on Pain.tv.
1: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Dustin Gold Standard. You are listening. To Dustin Gold, right here on pain.tv slash gold. Alright, ladies and gentlemen, let's finish this up here. It goes on to say, Gunnar uh, Mirdal wrote in The American Dilemma. This is in 1944. His influential study of race relations. Quote A handful of social and biological scientists over the last 50 years have gradually forced informed people to give up some of the more blatant of our biological errors. But there still must be other countless errors of the same sort that no living man can yet detect because of the fog within, within which our type of Western culture envelopes us end quote. Midrall knew whereof he spoke. He and his wife Alva were eugenicists who promoted an expansion of Swedish eugenic sterilization laws during and after World War II. More than 60,000 Swedes, and over 90% of them women, were sterilized from 1941 to 1975. The Midrall's eugenics disavowed racism but because it was deemed quote part of the scientifically oriented planning of the new welfare state end quote they did not see sterilization of the unfit as a quote biological error end quote well there you go folks planning of the new welfare state which is kill off the unfit these are the people that want to run your lives murderers literal murderers ladies and gentlemen can't they just leave us alone? How about a system of leave us alone? No, it's a system of total control, the complete opposite of leave us alone. It goes on to say the hubris of progressive era eugenics was twofold. First, the naive faith that science would prove a cure-all For social ills, which led to overreaching by eugenicists and those social scientists who appealed their authority, and second, the naive faith that the state, as guided by experts, would prove to be the best guarantor of human biological progress. A faith Marjoral in 1944 avowed in his Valedictory to the American Dilemma, quote, we have today in social science a greater faith in the improvability of man and society than we have ever had since the Enlightenment. One more time, folks, we have today in social science a greater faith in the improvability of man and society than we have ever had since the Enlightenment. And that's very important because he's talking about man and society. And so technocracy is there to control society. Eugenics is there to control man. And I told you that they will never be happy The technologists, the scientists, the engineers will never be happy. See, it says, faith in the improvability. That is because they deem us to be inefficient. And we will never be perfect in their eyes. They want to play God. They want to shape and form everything into their vision of perfection. And their vision of perfection is complete and total control. Control over the physical world. Control over the systems of government. The system of control. Control over the biology that is the plants, the animals, and us humans, and now control over the digital world. So it is the fusion of the biological, the digital, and the physical that make up the force industrial revolution. As Klaus Schwab and Yuval Noah Harari and Elon Musk and the rest of these folks work to further push us into a state of total control. There is no way, no how that anyone could ever say that the tenets of technocracy died with FDR's New Deal or that the tenets of eugenics died with Adolf Hitler or that MKUltra died when Sidney Gottlieb shut down the program in 1964. We have proven on this show that eugenics is alive and well, technocracy is here It is all around us. It is our culture. People do not reject the technology that is turning them into slaves of the system, prisoners in this system of social control. Eugenics obviously did not die. It's alive and well in transhumanism. MKUltra is alive and well in the psychedelics that the government is beginning to roll out. Uh, I just saw a quote someone sent me the other day that in Canada, there's talks of giving people who refuse to get the vaccine, you know, psychological medications to treat them like they're crazy. So if you don't play along with the high school theater production, you, in fact, are nuts. If you won't jab yourself up with the death juice, you are the crazy one. See, this is technocracy. This is around us. It's a system of total control. Uh, let's go into... This article I found because this was pretty good. I want to give this guy credit. This is JP Green with an E at the end. So it's JP, J-A-Y-P, Green, dot ecom And this is JP Green's blog with help some, from some friends. And this was a little article he wrote, Eugenics, A Case Study of the Dangers of Technocracy. So I wanted to give this guy a plug because I thought this was pretty good. So let me just run through this. It says, Technocracy is the belief that God... government. Government should be run by experts with policies shaped by scientific evidence. Advocates of technocracy have little enthusiasm for people making decisions about their own lives or those of their children because people too often choose the wrong thing. Experts, guided by evidence, are much better situated to shape people's decisions so that they work best for themselves. And others. And let me just say when they shape the decisions, that is the social engineering. Whether using a problem reaction solution loop or whether taking hold of publicly traded companies and then having them promote wokeness and other things of that nature uh, utilizing propaganda utilizing mind control all this stuff comes together folks and this is how they socially engineer society without having to really force people at gunpoint although for some of us there is always the threat that if you push back too much If you question the government a little too often, then they will come to you at gunpoint. They will come to you through the IRS. They will come to you with the police. So that is also social engineering by perceived force. It goes on to say, technocracy rose to prominence during the progressive era, but it has hardly lost its appeal to elites since then. It is clearly the dominant mode of thought among education policy experts. In fact, at the most recent annual conference of the Association for Education Finance and Policy, attendees wore buttons declaring the creed, quote, evidence-based, end quote. Let's leave aside that appending, quote, based, end quote, to evidence, quote, end quote, seems to negate what is modifying the, quote, natural flavoring, end quote, or, quote, based on a true story, end quote. And let's acknowledge that evidence is, of course, extremely useful for making good decisions. But the motivation behind this button and the thinking that pervades education experts is that policy should be, quote, based, end quote, on evidence, not merely informed by it. Evidence is the foundation. Technocracy should rule. Very important, folks. It's like trust the science. Trust the science. Well, what science? Well, we are the guys who control science. So if we tell you to take the vaccine, you just have to accept that and you have to trust the science because we're the science and we tell you to take the vaccine. Right? That's how they force you into it. That's so how they engineer you into that decision making process. goes on to say, to repeat, evidence is a good thing. But claims about what the evidence really says are often in dispute. And science is a very limited and imperfect uh, enterprise. So to be ruled by evidence rather than informed by it is extremely dangerous. Consider the example of eugenics which is, quote, the science of improving a human population by controlled breeding to increase the occurrence of desirable uh, heritable characteristics end quote eugenics is now considered thoroughly disreputable but for several decades it was the consensus approach of our scientific elite its science was widely respected and its practices and policy recommendations were quote evidence-based end quote Uh, and i would say that no it is not gone it's not discredited it's alive and well through transhumanism It's a little too easy to dismiss eugenics as a horrible error of our pre-scientific past. For several decades, it was the scientific present of the most respected elites. As Saul Gittleman put it, quote, the presidents of MIT, Stanford, Cornell, and Harvard all supported eugenics research. And as early as 1914, academic courses on the subject were taught at Harvard, Columbia, Cornell, Brown." wisconsin northwestern clark and mit presidents theodore roosevelt and woodrow wilson meanwhile spoke openly and wrote freely about quote racial suicide end quote their term for what would happen if the nation permitted the mixing of races end quote While laws against the, quote, mixing of races, end quote, had been introduced during slavery, a flurry of new laws were adopted as a result of this scientific inquiry into eugenics, such as that 41 of the then 48 states eventually had such laws in place. You could say that these laws were, quote, evidence-based, end quote. In addition, laws calling for the forced sterilization of people, deemed to be, quote, feeble-minded, end quote, were adopted and ultimately upheld by the U.S. Supreme Court. Chief Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes famously declared in his decision, quote, three generations of imbeciles are enough, end quote. This ruling by the Supreme Court was also considered, quote, evidence-based, end quote. This is fascinating. I think this gentleman did a very good job of summing up everything that we just covered. And so it's, it's a great... Uh, bookend to what we've done over the last two episodes. So, when I get back from this break, I'm going to finish this up for you uh, and giving pr- credit here again to JP Green. I think you did a fantastic job, sir. So, I wanted to feature this article instead of spending, you know, three episodes breaking down uh, more term papers that cover this same stuff. So, let me finish this when we get back and then we will uh, check out of here, folks. That'll be it. And I'll see if I can put out another episode tonight with finishing up Birth Without Violence. Ladies and gentlemen, I'll be right back. This is Dustin Gold with the Dustin Gold Standard right here on pain.tv slash gold.
0: You're listening to the Dustin Gold Standard on pain.tv. Join the discussion at pain.tv slash gold. You're listening to the Dustin Gold Standard on pain.tv.
1: And Gentlemen, I am Dustin Gold. Welcome back to the Dustin Gold Standard. Thank you for joining us here on Sunday evening, Monday morning. You are listening to pain.tv slash gold. All right, let's continue with this piece by J.P. Green. Again, you can find his work at jpgreen.com. It says, During World War II, President Franklin Roosevelt organized a secret committee to consider what to do with the large number of war refugees, especially Jews, who he expected to flee Europe after the war. Roosevelt asked Elise I can't even pronounce that folks, curator of physical anthropology at the Smithsonian Museum of Natural History to head this secret planning group. It's worth quoting Steve Ustin's account of this episode at length. It says the two men had carried on a lively correspondence for over a decade, talking about Roosevelt and Alice Heydreklikluschnikla. The two men had carried on a lively correspondence for over a decade, and the president had absorbed the scientists' theories about racial mixtures and eugenics. Roosevelt, the scion of two families that considered themselves American aristocrats, was especially attracted to Heydreklikluschnikla notions of human racial stock a prominent public intellectual who had dominated american physical anthropology for decades hydra Klachla was convinced of the superiority of the white race and obsessed with racial identity shortly after the pearl harbor attack he'd written to roosevelt expressing the view that the quote, less developed skulls, end quote, of Japanese were proof that they were innately warlike and had a lower level of evolutionary development than other races. The president wrote back asking whether the, quote, Japanese problem, end quote, could be solved through mass interbreeding. All right, so uh, when they're pointing their finger at you from the left calling you a racist, (laughs) calling you a white supremacist, calling you a white nationalist. Ask them to go back and take a look at their uh, hero, President Franklin Roosevelt's correspondence with uh, Elise Heidrichler, about what they thought about other races outside of the white race. So feel free to point them in the direction of FDR, who also happens to be the guy who implemented the major tenets of technocracy through the New Deal, especially branding every man, woman, and child with a social security number, which they needed. They needed that in order to make their energy certificate-based system work the system of the science of social engineering technocracy goes on to say Roosevelt had long resisted opening the doors to large numbers of immigrants, not as a result of political expediency, but based on his understanding of what science had to say on the matter. In 1925, Roosevelt had written a series of columns for the Macone Telegraph, in which he praised Canada's immigration policies, which were designed, quote, to prevent large groups of foreign-born from congregating in any one locality. If 25 years ago the United States had adopted a policy of this kind, we would not have the huge foreign sections, which exist in so many of our cities, end quote. All right. So let's just say Roosevelt might have been right about that. But, folks, you have to point your friends, your left wing friends over to this next time they call you some kind of a white nationalist. It goes on to say this evidence based resistance to increasing immigration contempt uh, condemned countless European Jews to their death. And also informed the findings of the secret committee he organized as to what to do with Jewish refugees following the war. Quote, the solution, which the president endorsed, essentially is to spread the Jews thin all over the world rather than allow them to congregate anywhere in large numbers, end quote. Apparently, he hoped to improve their stock through interbreeding, as he speculated might be done to reduce warlike tendencies among the Japanese. Keep in mind, eugenics was not championed by a fringe group. It was championed by the presidents of leading universities. See, this is brilliant. Jay Green, I give you a round of applause. I don't even know this person, but I give you a round of applause because as we saw in the Wikipedia article on eugenics when I was just giving you a basic rundown of the concepts behind this ideology, they started off saying it was You know, a fringe ideology. It is not fringe. It is not fringe today, and it was not fringe back in the late 1800s. It was championed by the presidents of leading universities, researchers at the Smithsonian, and several presidents of the United States. Jay goes on to say, I'm proud to note that my alma mater, Tufts University, never offered a course in eugenics. And a Tufts medical professor, Abraham Meyerson, was a leading critic of the idea, including in his testimony against forced sterilization of the quote, feeble minded, end quote. But Tufts was the exception, while more elite universities like Harvard and MIT actively pursued eugenics. Only the close association between eugenics and the Nazis eventually brought the idea into disrepute. Now, what I would say there, Jay, is that we have to look at what is actually happening today. So, you can't sit there and say that the Nazis tarnished the idea of eugenics and therefore it came to an end. Eugenics just moved in a another direction. And instead of trying to um sort of perfect the stock of a particular nation, through forced breeding and or forced sterilization or genocide, they increased their abilities in the areas of science and technology. And now they can do it in other means. All right. First off, let's just be honest here. Every needle that you take in your arm, you really don't know what it is. Let's just take COVID land, the high school theater production jab. No one really knows what that is. How do you know They're not changing your DNA to make you a better stock. How do you know they're not putting nanoparticles in your body? How do you know they're not putting graphene oxide inside of you? How do you know they're not giving you a death shot? Because they deemed you to be a drag on society. They deemed you to be unfit. They deemed you to be undesirable. I mean, just think about the technologies we learned about from Dr. Charles Morgan III, Dr. James Giordano, and others as they lectured the West Point Military Academy, the cadets and the faculty. So think of it like this. A conspiracy theorist uh, would be called out, right? If, 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 if I said to someone, well, when you go to the CVS drive through and they jab you, maybe they don't like you and they're actually going to try to kill you. Well, someone would say you're a conspiracy theorist because how the hell would they know it's me? Like if I was marked for assassination, how would they know that's me? They don't have a shot, a syringe sitting in a bag that says Dustin on it. Well, no, that's not the case. Let's say they already identified a particular gene, a particular strand of DNA that they don't like. So let's just say, because we're reading this article, let's say it's the Japanese. Say here in the territory of the United States, they decided they want to get rid of all of the Japanese. Well, they can get the DNA profile on Japanese, and that could be loaded into this syringe. And the syringe might not kill you unless you have this particular strand that they are attempting to to identify remember dr charles morgan iii 10-year cia intelligence officer and then working under government grants at a university in new haven to track all of these technologies in the universities in the private sector the so-called private sector and in the government right he said that they can create a disease that is targeted to kill just one person based on their dna profile So I told you when we covered all that back, I think that was in like episodes 40 to 50, that if they can do that, they can create something to kill a group of people who share a similar trait. Say they want to kill everyone with green eyes. So they stick everyone with a jab. And maybe that jab is just like saline solution to you and me. But if your mom or your dad or your wife or your husband has green eyes, boom, they drop dead. See, they have the ability to do this at a mass scale now. So eugenics is not what it used to be. It's not so primitive, right? We're going to take 20 little boys and 20 little girls and force them to have sex and breed. No, now they can do it through the uh, shots they give you. They can get you to do it on your own by wanting to have a designer baby. They can get you to merge with machine. There's all different ways they can do it. Now they have so many more tools at their disposal. And if it finishes up here, let's finish up his article. Before we turn over policymaking to the current scholars at Harvard and MIT, we might want to reflect on how wrong evidence-based policies can be. And rather than smugly asserting that past scholars were quacks, while current ones are true scientists, we might want to learn the lessons of humility that the eugenesis episode teaches. Let's be informed by evidence, but not be evidence-based i actually like this very much jay it's very reasoned and you thought through this stuff and i like how you just summarized it uh if i could figure out how to get a hold of you i'd ask you to come on the show because i think you did a great job and this was written before covid land the high school theater production kicked off i think it was 2018 at least i can kind of tell from the url where the blog is posted so i would like to see what jay ended up doing during covid land the high school theater production did he take everything he wrote and put it into context to that time did he say to himself i don't know I will be evidence-informed, but I am not going to be evidence-based. And so did Jay walk into the CVS clinic and get a jab, or did he say, I don't know, I'm very familiar with the concepts of eugenics, and the doctors and the scientists and the engineers alive today are the same people alive back then, they're just doing eugenics in a little bit of a different way. And so no, 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 I'm not going to take the shot. All right, folks, so I think right now you have a basic understanding of the eugenics movement, where it came from, what it grew out of. And now what we're going to start to do over the next couple of episodes is put together eugenics and technocracy and show you the overlapping characters in that world and we're going to start to dig deeper into some of the bankers that were behind this movement and try to figure out why the bankers would be behind the movement, because we are told that the bankers are just these evil capitalists, yet they were pushing forward Howard Scott, who was the founder and director of Technocracy, Inc., that stood for ending the price system, which is capitalism, and introducing the energy system. See, the bankers don't care if we're walking around with the fiat money that they print on the machine what the bankers want is control they want control they want power don't confuse that with monopoly money because power and control are different than monopoly money you have power you have control you have wealth you have influence right so power influence and wealth well, the wealth the bankers can always have, because if you control the monetary system, you will always be wealthy. But they are interested in total power and total control. Ladies and gentlemen, take control of your day today. Do something positive. Spend a half hour writing down some of your options, some of your goals, and start to look towards solutions to getting you to where you want to go. And where I want to go, folks, is to my editing software to finish this up, upload it, and then go pick up my wonderful, beautiful mother-in-law. Ladies and gentlemen, have a great day. My name is Dustin Gold with the Dustin Gold Standard right here on pain.tv slash gold. The Matrix is a computer-generated dream world built to keep us under control in order to change a human being.